most people dream about somebody who's usually much more developed and has a lot more beauty and qualities than they actually possess, which is kind of like, um, you know, uh, unrealistic is what it is. So what you do is in the meantime, you get clear on how you can grow to become that person's equal. So what do you need to do to really become that person's equal so that when your dream comes true, it doesn't become their nightmare? Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. In today's episode, Paul answers some of the many questions that you have submitted via social media and email to the Czech Institute. The topics he addresses today cover diet, including getting enough fiber, eating meat and veganism, becoming a medical professional, advice on developing healthy romantic relationships, finding quality water to drink, and suggestions for how to cope with the pain of losing a loved one. Well, hello and welcome to our third Q&A podcast with Paul. Uh, Paul, do you want to tell us a little bit about where we are recording from today? We're recording from our brand new house in Rainbow, California. Yay! We're upstairs uh, in our bedroom um, right at the balcony looking out the window with amazing forever mountain views and sun and it's just absolutely awesome. It's been a massive move, though. We're all really, really tired, and we still have a fair bit of work to do, but we're getting there. So um, I'm, in, I'm excited to be able to share with all of you from our new home, and hopefully you can just pick up the vibe here. It's awesome. It is awesome. It's a great, great new space. Yeah. So uh, we have a number of questions that people have sent in either via email or as comments on your Instagram mm -hmm. for you to answer a, a quite a diverse, eclectic range of questions. Good. <laughs> so we will start with the first one. Um, not sure who it's from, but uh, this person says, I found your podcast with Paul Saladino very interesting. I'm wondering, with the new research coming out since HLC1 was filmed, where you state the importance of fiber in our diet, where do you stand on, with a diet that eliminates it altogether? What do you think could be major negative implications? Okay, well, the, the major negative implications of a diet without fiber is that, um, A, if your body can handle it, like Paul Saladino's is currently handling it, I'm watching him carefully to see how long this goes on, um, then there is no problem. And if you look at my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, I show you the poopy policeman and the poopy lineup. And your poop's a very, very good indicator of how you're doing with regarding meeting your needs for fiber. And not only how your poop looks and smells, but um, how easy it is to pass. You should not have to struggle to um, do a bowel movement. And when people get low on fiber, they usually start getting heavier, darker, stinkier poops that are harder to pass. And that's not um, ideal. So there's as wide a range in our need for fiber as there is a, as wide a range as there is for our need for different macronutrients in our diet, which can range from nose, tail, carnivore, all the way to hardcore vegetarianism and veganism on either extreme. And, you know, 
the, the fiber has a number of, of benefits from its ability to pull toxins out of our body, to clean the colon, to sweep parasites out of the body and things like that. It's an effective bulking agent. Um, and there's probably other benefits to fiber, but it's been years since I, I studied fiber issues. Um, so I think it really boils down to paying attention to what your body's telling you. If you're not getting enough fiber, one of the things that's likely to happen is you're going to start accumulating toxins in your body. And that leads to things like skin problems. Um, if you have chronic high levels of toxicity, it can lead to adrenal fatigue or adrenal burnout. It can disrupt your ability to sleep effectively. It uh, can cause a lot of problems with cognitive performance. In other words, you tend to lose mental clarity and your capacity to maintain a train of thought can be diminished. So there's many, many indicators. But uh, if you look, for those of you that really want to master individual eating and not get caught up in any dogma, then my Primal Pattern Eating uh, online training program, which is a chunk right out of Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 2 that I thought was important to share with the public, teaches you three methods. Each one of them grows in potency, but tends to be um, more challenging for those that are clogged up or trapped in, in self-limiting belief systems. For example, if you don't believe in muscle testing, it'll never work because you don't believe in it. If you don't believe in the soul, soul connection won't work. So that person has to stay at the level of what I call uh, logging, diet logging, and looking for patterns and comparing uh, symptoms to foods. So the Primal Pattern Eating course takes you through quite a comprehensive explanation of how to not only individualize your diet, but how to recognize indicators that suggest a need for changes in diet, be it uh, how much uh, produce you're eating or how much fat you're eating or protein, or as I say in HLC1 or Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, eyes versus no eyes food. And then you start customizing it to yourself. And if you have seen my uh, YouTube video series on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash Paul Check Live, um, I show you uh, or I tell you in my uh, series titled The Fastest Way to Health that the fastest way to the first thing I say is the fastest way to health is to quit bullshitting yourself. When people get addicted to certain diets and certain approaches, they can convince themselves that it's working very well. But those of us uh, that have the training to know what we're looking at often smile and say, oh, that's very interesting. Uh, here's somebody who's overweight, out of shape, and unhealthy telling me how amazing their vegan diet is. Or here's someone who's obviously got signs of liver toxicity or kidney stress telling me that they're, they're eating a carnivore diet. And so um, your body's always telling you the truth. Symptoms are indications that the body's trying to compensate to do its best to keep you alive and keep you healthy and vital. And if the symptoms that you're having are not indicators of optimal physiology and optimal function, then it means pay attention to you know, what you're eating. Now, diet's only, of course, one factor, but it's a big factor and look at the quality of the food and the level of toxicity in the food, etc. So I don't have a fiber dogma, and I personally am curious to see how long Paul Saladino can go that way. 
but he may be gifted with the genes to handle that kind of a diet. Some of us aren't. And having experienced many, many diets and used myself as a guinea pig, I can assure you that I can range wildly as most of the people I coach from being able to go on pretty much an all meat diet, for example, after I do heavy weightlifting to days when it's hot and I'm resting or doing more cardiovascular type exercise or circuit work where my body begins to crave a lot of vegetables. And sometimes I'll even go all the way toward vegetarian or full vegetarian on my off days, especially if I take two or more days off of training. I find that the efficiency of my body when I'm not training is such that eating meat like I would on a training day just makes me feel bogged down, clogged up, and can constipate me. So the point I'm trying to drive at is there's such a wide range of difference between not only individuals, but within a given individual, depending on the environment they're in, um, depending on the kind of toxicity and stress within them from things like mercury poisoning, heavy metals, environmental toxins, food toxins, um, metal in their body, such as things like mercury amalgam fillings or other things that can be poisonous to the body, how they're doing in their relationships. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, all the factors I talk about in how to eat, move and be healthy and all throughout my training are all indicators that can influence what our diet is. So um, we not only have our genetic needs for things like fiber uh, or plant food versus animal food, but we have our body's need for resources that have to do with what's happening internally at any given time. So a body with a lot of toxicity may crave a lot of high fiber foods to aid in detoxification. And if somebody's on a dogma, such as a carnivore diet, they'll either not listen to or ignore those indicators and they end up um, telling everybody how great their diet is while they're getting sicker and sicker. So that's really my approach. Excellent. Uh, another question uh, from your Instagram comments. Um, I believe this is from Paul, but I'm not 100% sure. Another Paul. Okay. I'm a 26-year-old man who's been following you for about five years since I saw your Symptoms of Consciousness Rising video. You have changed my life, and I thank you so much for that. I am currently in the Army, deployed in Iraq, and will be getting out in the spring. I already have a college degree, but I'm considering going back to pursue medical school and become a physician. What advice or perspective do you have to share for a potential medical doctor? I'm drawn to psychiatry as I wish to do more research and work with plant medicines and bring them more into the mainstream of modern medicine. I'm not tied to this path, but I want a meaningful vocation which will allow me to help others make a positive impact and keep me challenged throughout my life. Well, I think the first challenge you're going to run into going to medical school, especially if you gravitate towards holistic teachings like my own, is that almost everything you're going to teach is going to go completely against everything you've just found to be helpful to you. And the question is, can you uh, endure four years of studying approaches that can be very, very unhealthy and also, when you get a medical degree, you are expected to use them. I've known many medical doctors to uh, have to go before review boards because they were being threatened to have their license removed for using uh, vitamins and natural approaches of various types. 
And I've known doctors to have their licenses taken away uh, because they weren't doing standard medical tests, but were using more naturopathic approaches and things like that. Um, my suggestion would be talk to medical doctors that are already quite holistic. Um, a good example of a holistic doctor is Nathan Riley, OBGYN, who's a friend of mine, and he's already spent many years in the medical system dealing with the conflicts uh, because of his holistic viewpoints. Uh, Paul Saladino, MD, is a psychiatrist, but he's an expert in diet and uses diet to help people heal. Um, and, and he, in my podcast with Paul Saladino, he talks a lot about his, his sort of frustration and challenges with medical school. So there's a good podcast for you to listen to right there. My suggestion would be to look into a really top-notch naturopathic uh, school or, or an ND or even uh, DO programs can be more um, open-minded, expansive, and holistic than MD programs. And DOs can be surgeons as well. In fact, some NDs are surgeons, depending on where you're at. But, uh, you know, and now also some medical schools are changing because they're falling so far behind. A lot of them are now getting into things like integrative medicine and uh, occasionally some energy medicine concepts. But usually they're they're kind of only like skirting the edges. It's more of a marketing thing than it is a real application from what I can see. But um, there, there are a lot of possibilities. Uh, one of the doctors that I know, Dr. Brian Walsh, who is a, a naturopathic doctor, he may have some good feedback for you. He, he's very, very skilled. And I think he went to a school that he was quite impressed with. So I would just really look at whether or not you need to be an MD, which I doubt to do the kind of research you want to do and offer the world what you want to offer, um, or whether you can take another approach such as becoming maybe an integrated, um, uh, you know, an integral psychologist or a depth psychologist through Jung's system, um, or what other options there are for you that will give you um, the capacity to study and uh, information that's more holistic and learn from teachers that are more holistic. Otherwise, I think you're probably going to find yourself very frustrated and uh, even disappointed when you have to do the things that you know uh, don't work near as well as alternative approaches. Hi, if you've listened to any of my podcasts, you know I'm a huge Organifi fan. Why? Because their products are made from top-notch certified organic source materials and they taste great and are loaded with nutrition for everyone from elite athletes to the whole family. Go to Organifi.com and check out their excellent immunity blend and amazing product line of highly nutritious, quick and easy to use products. They have excellent juice mixes, Organifi Gold for better sleep and relaxation, top-notch protein powder that tastes great, detox support, joint support, and more. To get your Living 4D with Paul Check discount at checkout, use the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20. All caps, check 20. To get to know the founder, Drew Canoli, listen to my podcast, episode 64, Drew Canoli UBU. I think you're really going to love Drew Canoli, and you'll realize why I have such great alignment of values with him, and I'm excited to promote Organifi with every podcast. Enjoy. 
And our third question also comes from your Instagram comments. Uh, and uh, again, I'm not sure who this is from, but the question is, what is your take on the indigenous prophecies that seem to be playing themselves out right now, such as the warrior of the rainbow prophecy, the Pachacuti prophecy, and the prophecy of the eagle and condor? I've read a number of those prophecies over the years, and it, but it's been a while. Um, the one that I find to be the one that sits best with me the most is the Hopi prophecy. Um, and Greg Braden does a great job of, of uh, basically explaining the Hopi prophecy on his Gaia TV program called Missing Links. Um, and in the, the Hopi prophecy, they show a diagram that's carved into stone and they show that if we take, if we continue on the path of advanced technology and doing the things that we're doing, such as chemical farming, fossil fuels, uh, nuclear power, et cetera, that we, that, that they drew a trail that forks and uh, to the right hand fork is the path that we're on. And it comes to a dead end. Some say as, as early as about uh, 2036. Um, if we get back to sustainable practices, rehabilitating the soil, um, sustainable energy uses for which we have numerous patents available that have been confiscated by the governments and corporations that don't want that information out there, but we do have the capacity right now to tap into zero point energy um, and not need any kind of stressful um, or negative forms of power generation, such as burning coal, burning gasoline, uh, other issues like drilling for oil, because zero point energy is everywhere and it's free and it's abundant. So the question is, can you get 7 billion people to change their behavior? Um, and the coronavirus epidemic has shown that the grand majority of them will uh, believe what they see on television and do what they're told. But the reality of it is, is that, um, just doing what you're told and, and uh, believing what you see on television isn't going to stop us from the kind of challenges that the prophecies are talking about. What we really have to do is radically change the way we relate to the world or the earth and to each other and not do things moving forward that are toxic, damaging to the planet and unsustainable, or we will go extinct probably within the next 20 to 40 years which you know would make me sad because my kids are two of my kids are young and their lives are just beginning so generally what you see is that we all have choices to make together and the challenge is we've gotten so smart we've become really stupid uh, we know how to make nuclear powers and fly uh, rockets to the moon but we're too stupid to pay attention to the fact that we're destroying the planet and going against all the uh, essential principles of nature so here's a relationship question oh for boy. you. Something I know a little bit about. <laughs> yes. In romantic relationships, I noticed the habit of creating conditions for abandonment to take place. Yes. Usually caused by placing my worthiness in the hands of a beautiful woman. Or I'm the one abandoning a woman who has not developed feelings, oh, who has developed feelings for me, but I cut off the flow of energy because I'm generally not interested in doing the dance. What are some action steps 
physical energy healing, or questions that I can answer that will allow me to transcend these relational karmic loops. And just so you know, this is Aaron, so not that it matters, but we're talking about a heterosexual relationship, and it's a guy asking the questions. Yeah. You know, the thing is, is you've already made great observations. Um, You know, the first step toward healing is being clear on what needs to be healed. You know, when I work with uh, my clients and patients and I analyze their, um, what I call the big eight archetypes, um, which are the Imago Dei, which is your what you believe God is, <clears throat> the mother, the father, the child, then the derivations of the child, such as the orphan child, the the uh, nature child, the eternal child, the magical child, etc. And then there's the victim, and then there's the saboteur and the prostitute. So when you're talking about this kind of situation, you need to look at how your mother and father's relationship went, how they related to each other, because that's what you absorbed as a child, consciously and mostly unconsciously. So when you do this kind of work, one of the things that I have my clients do when I'm doing work with them is write down four, the four, up to four positive comments that uh, that describe your mother. So if you narrowed your mother down to up to four positive statements, what would they be? And then you do four, up to four negative. Like my mother is you know, one might be very loving, but a negative might be uh, over controlling. Um, Then you do the same with your father. What are up to four positives and what are up to four negatives? Then what you do is you look at the pattern in your own relationships. So for example, if you say, okay, what are the most common reasons given for uh, people wanting to end relationships with me? And it doesn't just have to be intimate relationships. It can be work relationships, friendships. And then what you're likely to find is that the reasons that they give match uh, usually multiple, sometimes all the negative comments that you ascribe to your mother and your father. So this is called shadow work. Now you're bringing something that's unconscious up into conscious awareness. So let's say... um, you you see that uh, you know maybe dad had a history of having extramarital affairs and mother felt abandoned. So you're you may be taking on this um, abandonment archetype from the influence that your mother had on you. But the key point is once you're aware of what's operating in your unconscious, then you can actually bring it up from the unconscious to the conscious. But uh, then you look at the victim or the saboteur, because this is really a form of sabotage, the way the question's posted. You could be in an intimate relationship with someone that's extremely beautiful, intelligent, and hits all your buttons, yet find yourself doing things and having thoughts and feelings that actually may not be justified, but they're the, the, uh, your partner's triggering off your programming and that's how we grow. We we pay attention to where we're getting triggered. And um, then you, what you've got to do is 
you know, before you can really get too far with all this, you have to say, what is my dream for a relationship? You know, what is it that a relationship means to me? What are my values around relationship? What's important to me? So sometimes in relationship coaching, when people are having challenges, I have them do a must-have and a must-not-have list. So, for example, I must have a partner that um, isn't pro-vaccine and isn't going to get into battles with me about vaccinations if we have kids. I must have a partner that's spiritual but not trapped in a religious dogma. Um, I must not have somebody that's codependent or needy. Um, you know, whatever it is for you, because that sets up the polarity. Remember, your yes has no value until you learn to say no. And until you know what your values are that are important for you to live with a partner, you don't really know whether or not your um, lack of desire to connect to even a beautiful woman all of a sudden is really an unconscious awareness that her values may not be matching yours or what's driving it. So doing the shadow work or the healing work is very, very important because it just brings you into more awareness of who you are, um, what your programming was, where it's serving you, where it's not serving you. But ultimately having a dream goal or objective for yourself, which requires, you know, awareness of who do I want as my partner? What are the kinds of things that I want to do with this person personally, professionally, and spiritually? Do I want, for example, somebody in the same profession or someone in a different profession? Do I want to have a partner that I can get along with well enough to run our own business together? Or is that going to be too much contact for me based on my sort of sense of my intuition of what will work well for me? Um, you know, Penny and I uh, and Angie all work in, in the Czech Institute business together. Um, Angie runs the HLC department. Penny is the manager of a million things. Um, and even though you know, I'm the content creator and Angie's the chief of the HLC department and Penny is a, a, a money manager and, and she manages multiple businesses. We each have separate functions and we all work together as a team. But if you are in an environment like that with somebody all day long and you have unconscious shadow material coming into conflict, it can really make the workplace a very messy place. And I've worked with and known many people whose businesses basically got ruined because they could not function effectively with their intimate partner um, at work because it was too much exposure. So there was too much triggering of their shadow material. And um, <clears throat> you got to remember that these things are all catalysts for growth. Anytime you have something that's triggering you, uh, it means it's not healed yet. So in a nutshell, get clear on what your dream is for your partner. When I realized I had to find a very special woman to be with me because I'm so driven by my mission, which is holistic health and the Czech Institute, that I kept going through women who started off all lovey-dovey. And I told them I'm very focused. So, you know, don't expect me to be coming home right at five o'clock to have dinner at night and whatever. And they, you know, would be all high on the whole idea and they liked the kind of notoriety that I had. But after about 90 days, a consistent pattern was that they started whining and complaining about how much I worked and 
you know, all the stuff you can imagine. And that wasn't going to work for me and it didn't work for me. So I ended the relationship, which led me to really realizing I needed to get extremely clear on what I needed in a partner. So I spent a lot of time meditating and writing all that down. And it took me a year and a half of meditating on that each day. And I used Yogananda's soulmate's prayer. And so I would take my list of all the qualities I wanted, such as highly intelligent, highly capable of values alignment, mission alignment, athletic, um, loving, willing to let me be myself with other women, if that was something that came naturally, uh, etc. And after a year and a half of meditation, I saw Penny in a vision and knew it was her immediately. And after spending really only about four days together, we got engaged and we've been married 23 years. And I would, I don't even, I couldn't even imagine being without her. I simply just, it's not even part of my consciousness. Um, so the soulmate's prayer is, bless me that I choose my life's companion according to the laws of perfect soul union. And that's a prayer by Paramahansa Yogananda. Bless me that I choose my life's companion according to the laws of perfect soul union. And then you just be patient. But the most important thing is not just writing everything down and hanging around waiting for that person. Most people dream about somebody who's usually much more developed and has a lot more beauty and qualities than they actually possess, which is kind of like, um, you know, uh, unrealistic is what it is. So what you do is in the meantime, you get clear on how you can grow to become that person's equal. So what do you need to do? to really become that person's equal so that when your dream comes true, it doesn't become their nightmare. And um, when you follow those steps and you get clear and you look into your parental programming and you can do, you can go to um, the Czech Institute and in our online training, there is my um, Czech four quadrant coaching mastery. And in the first section that we have up, we're still building the rest of it. Um, it does take you through the big eight, big eight archetype. So you could actually do that analysis for yourself by just taking that section of training. And that brings you into some real clarity about who you are, what your values are, and maybe where some of the challenges that you can work on are. And that kind of growth and development is really good, but without a clear sense of who you want to be with, what you're going to bring to the table, and where you can do more growth to be that person's equal. Um, you may do some shadow work. You may recognize where your programming is at, but you may not attract the right person into your life. And then you can find yourself really frustrated because you can be thinking, God, I did all this work on myself. I spent a year doing all this healing and I'm stuck right with the same kind of person that I had the last five times. But if you really get honest with yourself and look at the challenges you've had in past relationships and the kind of feedback you've gotten from women when they were you know, irritated or triggered or left you, then you can start to say, okay, well, I can see from the pattern that I need to really work at being present with people uh, instead of just being in the room doing my own thing. That That's a common one for men. Um, maybe I need to uh, make sure that if I'm really committed to my work, that I find a partner that 
is somehow part of it or understands my mission isn't just beautiful, good and bad and whatever else you might be, you know, dreaming about. So those are some tips uh, that I can give. You know, these are very deep topics. I do a lot of relationship coaching because a lot of people's health problems track right back to relationship challenges. So um, hope you enjoy the process. It's a very important one. The science on marijuana derivatives and CBD oil is proving much the same as the research on ayahuasca tea and psilocybin containing mushrooms. These are now being considered panacea medications because of the wide variety of benefits that they offer. CBD products have many benefits, including reduced inflammation, aiding recovery from exercise, improved relaxation and sleep quality, and enhanced healing. One Farm's excellent CBD oils and products are an essential part of my natural medicine kit, and I use them regularly to support my health and my training. One Farm has a great variety of CBD oils, gummies, healing creams, skin support, and more. You've really got to check out their products and see how beautifully they farm and prepare them. As a sponsor with Living 4D with Paul Check, One Farm generously offers all of you a 15% discount on any purchase by going to onefarm.com forward slash C-H-E-K. That's onefarm.com forward slash lowercase c, lowercase h, lowercase e, lowercase k. No discount code is needed. Just follow the link. You'll know you're there because you'll see pictures of me and some of my podcasts are featured there. And your 15% coupon code will be automatically added to your order. If you want to learn more about marijuana products and the high standards one farm had to meet before I'd accept them as a sponsor of Living 4D with Paul Check. Listen to my excellent podcast with marijuana expert Alicia Rose, episode 80. The next question is on a topic that we get a lot of questions on. Oh, what's that? The person says, talk to me about water. Okay, yes, yes. I have read all you provide online about water charges, but I am deeply interested in learning more. If you, if you could shed some light on filtration, non-native EMF exposure, grounding, primary source, and more, I would greatly appreciate it. Well, there's, the first thing I would say is this is a very massive topic. Um, Rudolf Steiner had a lot to say about water, but somebody who's got uh, a lot that you can learn from is Victor Schauberger. He was an Austrian forest ranger and was a true expert on water. And he's got books. Uh, some of the books were written by Callum Coates. Um, they're about Victor Schauberger, but I don't think Schauberger wrote books. I think others wrote about him, if I remember. I probably got six or seven Victor Schauberger books in my library, all very potent and, and very good reading. Um, and uh, not just water, but on other things as well. But... Uh, and then there's uh, uh, Pollock. I forgot Dr. Pollock's first name, but his book has the fourth phase of water in the title. And there's a number of other, I got a whole, I probably have 40 or 50 books on water in my library. Um, but some of the things uh, about water, you know, one, in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, I tell you that a good drinking water should have at least 300 parts per million total dissolved solids, and I give you the reasons why. Um, you know, if water spends too much time in pipes that are straight, it does not follow the natural rhythm and flow that water does in nature, which um, 
deadens the water. It actually devitalizes the water to the point that it's often considered by experts dead water. Um, there are flow form technologies developed by both Schauberger and Rudolf Steiner that are used in restaurants, in manufacturing processes, in farming, biodynamic farming, um, in homes, and those techniques enliven the water. There's a lot of gadgetry out there, a lot of which I'm not really too pumped on, uh, such as things that you know have crystals and spin the water, and they may or may not work so well. Um, water really needs to be in touch with nature and natural elements. Water does not do well when it's exposed to sunlight. Victor Schauberger goes into that quite a bit. Uh, I think water's peak working temperature is somewhere around uh, 36 to 40 degrees, if I remember right. Keeping water in cool, dark areas is best until you're going to drink it. Um, drinking water at room temperature is always best for athletic training because you it will enter your body faster. I talk about that in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy. Um, when it comes to water testing, excuse me, water filtration system, you cannot determine what filtration system is best based on information about filtration systems because depending on what's in the water, you could need radically different filtration systems. Having worked with many of my clients who uh, got their water tested and found out that they had various things from uh, toxicity from nickel to uh, various other elements to, um, I can't remember all the different things you can, they, they found in water. Um, but what you find out is that depending on what's in the water determines the specific type of filter you have to get. And once you know what's in the water, for example, do you want a carbon filter or do you want a reverse osmosis filter uh, or you know some other form of filter? But until you know exactly what you want to filter out of the water, then you can start shopping different companies and you can look at different price ranges and even different systems designed to remove those specific elements from water. Somehow I keep getting clients that have stuff that nobody's ever figured out good ways for removing from water. Uh, so it takes a fair bit of research to do that. Um, what were some of the other components of the question? Uh, the source of the water, the grounding okay. of water, and non-native EMF exposure. Well, non-native EMF exposure is just what is in nature anywhere. So um, the best, Schauberger and others say the best water to drink is artesian water because it's already been filtered and processed and energized by the earth. In fact, it has so much energy, it levitates up. The earth, the earth charges the water and the water actually comes up to the surface through the natural effects of the earth on the water. So anytime you can get artesian well water, um, you're going to get the highest quality uh, water that's the best. And in fact, research shows that animals will walk for miles and miles to get to artesian wells out in nature. And they carve trails right to that water. Uh, even when there's lakes nearby, they'll go find the artesian water. There's a website called findaspring.com that shows you where spring water is available all over the world. And a lot of springs have artesian wells feeding them. So that's another benefit. Um, 
when I build a, a water charger, it's using native EMFs as one of the inputs uh, that energize the stones and therefore the water. Um, you don't want water around um, a lot of electrical circuitry or electromagnetic pollution. You should never put your phone near the water. In fact, one of the uh, things I do for my HLC students is I have them hold a bottle of water in their left hand and take a phone that's turned on in their right hand and hold the phone, you know, like arm's length away from the water. And as you move the phone toward the bottle of water, pay close attention to what's happening in your left hand and you'll feel it literally starts to make the water buzz just like it was in a microwave oven. And then the closer the phone gets, the more it buzzes and water has an almost infinite capacity for memory. So it'll pick up that frequency. And when you drink it, it's literally you're drinking the frequency of the phone, which is, you know, really bad for your body. So storing water where there's a lot of electrical activity or electrical circuitry or uh, having your water bottle near a computer um, or like I said, a phone is always a bad idea because the water is like a sponge for frequency and your whole biological system is really energy and frequency. So if you're drinking water that's buzzing you up, it actually can overly excite key systems in the body. In fact, it can excite, overexcite the whole body. And it, it can have a similar effect to being overstimulated on caffeine, but you wouldn't experience it quite like that. But you could experience it, it as anxiety, which is not uncommon at all. Uh, I think that's kind of the key, key points that I would share on water without some very focused questions. Okay, great. Uh, the next question is a combination of diet and relationships. Well, you know, <laughs> your diet and relationship are really the same thing. <laughs> so it starts off uh, as follows. What is the best approach from a dietary standpoint when bringing a child into the world? Can a developing mind and body of a baby thrive on a vegan diet? Can everyone th thrive on a vegan diet in the long term? Or does that depend on genetics? And do you have any advice to approach the topic of which diet is best when my partner has a belief that the vegan diet is best for everyone in any situation? Well, I feel sorry for you because that's a dogma. And uh, there is no such thing as anything that's right for anybody all the time in any situation. And if you listen to my podcast series, which I highly recommend your partner does, called The Honest Vegetarian, I believe it's five or six parts. Uh, I did it with Matthew Wald, a naturopathic physician and an osteopathic physician, and a very intelligent man. Um, part one is on my podcast, and the rest of the parts are on Chakiva, our media site, chekiva.com, chakiva.com. Um, and we go very deep into all aspects of diet, which will answer your questions a thousandfold at a depth I can't even touch in this podcast Q&A. But we're right back to a few issues here. One is the food clean. That's the first thing. It doesn't matter if you're a vegan. If you're eating commercially raised food, you're just poisoning yourself uh, with your, your own diet philosophy. Um, so if it's not organic, it's already bad news because it's going to be toxic with farming chemicals and it's going to come from soil that are 
soils that are depleted and there's going to be very minimal nutrition in food like that, which is devastating to a pregnant woman or a child. Two, children need, in my experience, a fair bit of fat in their diet. I have three kids. One of them's 40, one of them's four, and one of them's nine months old. So I've been through this process of raising kids uh, enough to notice that kids really do like fatty foods. Um, both of our kids are fat and meat lovers. And so the thing to do is don't ever apply your own dogma to the child, because even though the child may be your child, the soul in there is not your soul. <laughs> it's, in other words, each soul brings in its history with it. Each soul brings in its own needs. And each soul brings in unresolved challenges from previous lifetimes, at least based on my training and my experiences, uh, that's the case. And, and so I've looked into this quite a bit. Uh, and, you know, I have kids. So you can have two or three children from the same parents, but find that they have radically different diet needs and radically different um, attractions. One may be very oriented toward a vegetarian diet. One may be very oriented toward a carnivore diet. But if you tell that child that's wrong, then you're not paying attention to the fact that the child does not have a bunch of diet dogma. It's reacting to its body's natural urges, which is very, very healthy. As long as the food it's eating is quality, clean food, let the child determine what it wants. And as long as it's not gravitating, uh, gravitating towards processed sugar, candy, junk food, processed food, because those things are all highly addictive. So you can't trust the child's own instincts once you allow the child to become addicted. And that's a real big problem out there. Um, also, you want to make sure that you're looking for any signs of intolerance or allergy. I had severe headaches all my life till I was 36 and got blood tests done and found out that I had a genetic allergy to beef and dairy. And, um, and I had 42 food intolerances. And I was raised on a farm eating beef and our own dairy every day. And within 72 hours of stopping beef and dairy, I got rid of my headaches completely. In fact, my reaction was so strong, sometimes my left eye would spontaneously go blind. And doctors all told me it was from tension in my neck from um, kickboxing, boxing, and motocross racing. But it, that was just totally wrong. Um, so if you really want to parent a child effectively, all you've got to do is make sure that what you're putting in front of it is worth eating and that you give it a variety of options from plant food to flesh food and fruits, you know, plant foods includes fruits, but you, you know, give it access to fruits, vegetables that are appropriate for the age of development, obviously, because like a, a three, a six month old can eat certain things that a nine month old can, etc. But having a diet dogma is extremely dangerous when raising a child, as is a religious dogma or any dogma for that matter. Um, <clears throat> you've probably heard me talk about that plenty if you've listened to the podcast. Uh, and also remember, mother's breast milk is about 55% fat. And a lot of it is saturated fat, which is something that's very low on a vegan diet. Most vegans, and I've, I've seen vegan mothers who were so lacking fat that they almost had no breast tissue 
And I've known many of them that could not manufacture milk and had to switch to baby formulas, which is a very bad idea because they almost all have soya in them, which brings the child's estrogens up very, very high, throws its hormonal system out of balance. And good research shows that there's children all over the world hitting puberty between three and eight years of age because of all the elevated estrogens and baby formulas. And an excellent book, if you haven't read it, is The Whole Soy Story by Kayla Daniel. It'll, for most vegans that eat a lot of soy, uh, if they haven't read that book, it'll straighten them right up. And if you listen to my podcast with Paul Saladino, uh, it's also a very profound challenge to veganism. So I think I've covered the key points. I've worked with many people having uh, problems with children. And what I was alluding to earlier, when you see things like chronic runny noses, uh, redness around the eyes, itching in the nose, itching in the ears, itching of the anus, uh, swelling of the body, inability to fall asleep at night, poor sleep quality, skin conditions. Um, you know, if you can analyze it, it's hard in a child, but, but if they get mental confusion, those are all very common reactions to food that can indicate allergies or intolerances. And uh, having worked with many people in my career whose children are having these kinds of problems and taking them through the process of identifying what the child needs, um, so far I've never worked with anybody that did not essentially greatly improve or completely eliminate the problems using these kinds of approaches and what I teach in our holistic lifestyle coaching program. So uh, you've got some great resources there. Um, if you go to the Weston A. Price uh, .org Foundation, uh, they've got some good books on feeding kids. If you go to uh, angiesworld.com and email Angie, uh, who is my second wife and the head of our um, HLC department, she probably could give you several excellent books on feeding children because she's studied that extensively for our own children. Um, it's Angie Check, and she is a nutritionist, by the way, by license. And so there's some great resources for you. I think you got plenty to work with there. Hi, everybody. I'm super excited to share Symbiotica's Coated Silver, which is an excellent product. I'm sure you've heard of colloidal silver before, which is an ancient technology for killing immune pathogens and protecting yourself naturally. I brought Shervin in to share the advances in the technologies he's made because this is one of the most important products you can have in your arsenal right now with the coronavirus scare and all the other issues of public health we're facing. So, Shervin, what's unique about your coated silver product? Well, we're in crazy times right now. Yes. We're dealing with viruses, pathogens, all forms of disease breaking down the body, and we're resisting the antibiotics. And we now know that antibiotics destroy friendly flora. Yes. We do not want to disturb that super balance of our microbiome. That's what I like to call it because that's the brain, heart, mind connection. It all starts from the gut. Yes. Coated silver was invented and perfected at Clarkson University by a PhD chemist with decades of experience in nanotechnology. So we have multiple studies and government studies that back the safety of this up and its efficacy as a real health tonic product. Yes. And so, as you know, silver does not fight 
friendly flora. Friendly flora breathe oxygen. Silver antagonizes and drowns out, basically suffocates anything that's nitrogen breathing, which is the dirty pathogens, which are things that don't belong there. So this silver product can be used in any way. You can take it orally, you can nebulize it, put it in a diffuser, you can make topical sprays, you can put it in a neti pot. It's 20,000 parts per million. Most things at the store are five to 20 parts per million. This is 20,000 parts per million and it's bounded to a polysaccharide. So it is almost like a food. So it gets in your body, does what it needs to do and gets out. Awesome. This is critical. Well, to get your 15% discount, go to C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. That's symbiotica.com. And on checkout, use your code, capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15 for your 15% discount. And while you're there, make sure you check out all the rest of Symbiotica's absolutely amazing products. I've tried them all. I use them uh, as needed, and they're all excellent. I can't wait to hear your feedback on this amazing product. Great. We have three similar questions here in that they all deal with grieving the loss of a loved one, a parent, uh, a sibling, um, or similar. So uh, I'm going to kind of group these together for you. Yeah, no problem. Uh, even though they're they're all slightly different. So I'm going to go all through all three of them. Okay. So you can touch the, on aspects for each person. So uh, Drake uh, writes, hello, Paul, my parents died in a murder suicide when I was two years old, and I would be so grateful to hear your thoughts on if after my soul moves on from the earth plane, will I be able to contact them? My heart truly yearns for contact with them, but if it will never be, I feel as though a bit of closure will help me heal. Can you just pause right there? Uh, Yes, you can contact them, but you don't have to wait till you die. If you want to hire me as a consultant i can teach you how to contact your parents anytime you want to they're probably hanging around you every day wanting to contact you uh nobody that dies is gone that's a complete misunderstanding i work with people on the other side regularly daily practically um so through some training probably within two hours or less, I could teach you how to do that. So <clears throat> that's the answer to that part of the question. Okay. Um, the, the next person says, some, since sometime I've tried to find a way to deal with pain that I haven't let myself to fully feel after the loss of my brother due to cancer 10 years ago. Your teachings really helped me to understand that this impacts my life in ways I only started to realize. I would would really appreciate your advice on practical ways on how to heal a long-repressed pain. Well, I would go to my YouTube channel to start with and look at my series called The Seven A's of Healing, which are based on Gabor Mate's teachings. Um, And I give the resources uh, that I use in there, but even though I'm using the seven A's of healing from one of Gabor Mate's book, it's really my own expression. In other words, I'm not just reading out of the book. I'm sharing uh, my own approach to those seven A's. The seven A concept comes from Gabor Mate and he's, he's got some great work out there. Um, I would also encourage you to look into the work of Peter Levine, who is an expert on trauma and healing from trauma. 
Um, the I've been through this. I've had multiple deaths in the family. My brother committed suicide uh, when I was 35. He was 34. Um, and I think one of the issues is that we're afraid to allow ourselves to feel pain for a variety of natural reasons, just like, you know, nobody wants to let you poke them with a pen or hold a cigarette lighter under your hand to see how long you can take it, because we inherently know that that's not a wise thing to do. But the issue with emotional pain is usually that it's a lot different than our mind or our, our ego tells us it's going to be. <clears throat> and as I said to the previous questioner, a lot of the pain is because we perceive that that person is gone forever. But in actual fact, anytime you even think of someone that's passed, it's the effect that it has on them in the afterlife is very much like when your phone starts ringing. Think of when your phone's ringing and ringing, how hard it is for you to ignore it. Say you're in the middle of sex and the phone rings. It'll, it'll completely disrupt the moment. If you're watching a movie and you're really into it and your phone rings, it's very hard to stay connected to the movie because we have this innate urge to want to connect. So um, when you realize that your loved one isn't dead, just their body has been dropped. The physical body, the biological part of them dies, but really who we are and what we are is, is largely light. And light does not have a shelf life. Neither does consciousness. So if you can come to the realization that a lot of your grief is probably based on the illusion of terminal loss and that your loved ones probably near you and with you and connecting to you every time you think of them and miss them, then a lot of the pain goes away. And instead of feeling this deep grief and loss, it's more like you're in a long-term relationship with someone who you really love, but they're on the other side of the country working. So the best you can do is communicate with them through phone calls and FaceTime and things like that. Well, when someone dies, we, we can have a long-term relationship with them if we learn the techniques that I teach my, my students and my clients or patients that have these kinds of challenges. And you can soon learn that, oh my God, I can still talk to this person. I can still have a relationship and I can learn a lot of amazing things from them because they're in a different level of reality than I am. So next is just really allowing yourself to experience the loss. It's, it's healthy. Um, now, as a medicine man spirit guide, I can tell you that um, certain species of mushrooms are very, very helpful for that. For example, um, there's a species of medicinal mushrooms called golden teachers, which I've found to be extremely helpful for emotional healing. Now, they do have psilocybin in them, and um, using as little as one-third of a gram to one-half of a gram, which is a very, very safe dose, it, you know, it's not legal in most places, but that, you know, um, often bad medicine's legal and good medicine's illegal, so um, I'm only giving you options, I'm by no means telling you to break the law, that's up to you how you handle it, 
but I can tell you for sure that the appropriate use of, of uh, psilocybin containing mushrooms, and there's now even doctors and therapists in professional circles using psilocybin, and there's research studies being done on it, which are showing massively positive results. But using low-dose mushroom therapy, such as one-third to half a gram four days on and two days off, will open up your emotional body. And in the beginning, when you have repressed emotions like that, it's best to start those types of therapies, say on a Friday night when you have the whole weekend to go through and have the space to allow the emotions to rise up and experience them. Other things that you can do is just put your awareness on that person, pay attention to where you feel tension or emotion or trapped energy in your body, and then imagine that you're breathing right through that part of your body. And every time you inhale, you can. one of the techniques I use is I breathe in the love of God, or if you don't like that word, the love of the universe. And I breathe love to my loved one, my, the person that I've, I've lost or the person that I'm grieving over. And that allows you to create the connection and breathe love and visualize love moving through the parts of your body that are locked up. And that can have a tremendous opening effect. And that can be a daily practice that you can do for anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes, depending on how you feel about it. Then there's things like there's healing songs. Uh, Angie Check is a shaman with advanced training, and there's many healing songs that shaman use. Uh, one of them is cool waters down below, down below, down below. Take my pain, take my pain, take my pain down below. So there's just the beginning of a couple of lines of it, but there's an example of a song that when you chant a song like that with the intention of healing and letting go of the pain and letting Mother Earth take the pain, then you actually consciously begin to open up the energy centers where the pain is being held, such as chakra systems and organs and glands that are involved. And it because your intention is on healing, then the body begins to heal. And because you're making space to heal, a lot of people are afraid to feel their pain because they're afraid they're going to be overwhelmed by it. And they won't be able to, you know, parent their children, meet their obligations, etc. But if you really do this, say at night before you go to bed and give yourself permission to feel whatever emotion rises and breathe it out as the emotion comes up, visualize yourself breathing it out, then you will get a lot of healing. Uh, drumming is very good for that as well. A shaman uh, someone that operates the way I do could have a lot of drumming techniques for you there. Um, in Native American healing, the rattle is really the one of the chief tools for for working with grief because in in the Native American culture, um, and I can tell you from working with rattles quite extensively, um, the the rattles associated with rain and rain is associated with washing away pain. So rattling and chanting, and or just creating a song about your healing. Um, for example, um, I am happy, I am healthy, I am whole. I am connected to my loved one. I remain connected and will always be connected. I am happy, I am healthy, I am whole. And rattling to that, 
or paying attention to where you feel blocked in your body when you put your awareness on that person and then rattling over that part of your body and visualizing the energy of the rattles like rain washing your pain away. Um, you know, a lot of these techniques work not only because of the vibrational aspect, but because psychologically there's nothing more powerful than your mind. So once you start engaging healing, you, you know, you could practically, you know, beat sticks together or rub rocks together. If the intention is there, then the body and the soul knows you're ready to heal and the healing will begin. Then there's journaling, which can be very effective, especially for people that are left brain dominant. You can also paint your pain. And by connecting to it, going into a meditative state and seeing and feeling the pain and painting it, you actually go through a psychic process of moving the pain out of your body onto the canvas where you can see it. And then it can symbolize your healing. And, and, and it's sort of a, a symbol of your honest uh, participation in your own healing and your honest willingness to heal. Um, so there's that aspect of it. Um, marijuana, uh, if you get an outdoor grown marijuana, particularly uh, an indica or a hybrid that's part sativa, part indica, can really open your feeling body so you can do a lot of these practices I'm describing with enough marijuana to not kind of stone you out of reality, but to open your feeling body so you can access the parts of yourself that are closed down and need to be accessed. Um, the essential oil of sweet fennel, I find very helpful for enhancing connection. Um, frankincense is, is very healing. White angelica is very healing. Palo Santo can be helpful. There's a number. Uh, I would encourage you to reach out to Dr. Nick Berry at essentialoilwizardry.com and have him make some suggestions for essential oils that will help you with the grieving process. There's many, many techniques, and I work with people at an individual level and customize the approach based on what I think fits their um, own individual psychological profile the best. Um, if you study Peter Levine's work, you're probably going to get many if you study um, Basil van der Klok. So look into the works of Basil van der Klok. And he's actually got a, a, a DVD program on healing trauma and traumatic pain. Um, and that you might find very, very helpful. Without a long expose, you know, there's not much I can say more than that because, you know, it has to be done with hands-on training and things like that. But that's sort of an overview of the approach that I take to that. I'll finish with an exercise, though, for all of you listening, whether you're dealing with grief or not, because we all have pain in our lives at some point, and we all carry you know, pain from past relationships and challenges and deaths and whatever. But one of the exercises I use in therapy is I have a person, it's a visualization exercise. You go into a meditative state, do some uh, slow, relaxed breathing, like a four, six, eight breath, inhale for four, hold for six, release for eight. Do that for enough minutes that you find yourself in a really calm state. Then visualize that there's a swimming pool in front of you. And then imagine that there's a hose running from your body into the pool and you let all your pain flow into the pool. In fact, you just let the whole pool fill up with the liquid expression of your pain. 
And then I ask the person to look at it and tell me what it looks like. And you get some wild things that come out of people. I say, smell it. And oftentimes they say it smells like the sewer. And so then what I do is I say, okay, now I want you to go over to the diving board and get up on top of the high, high dive is better. Go up to the high dive and look down and tell me what it looks like when you're looking at it from above. And then what I do is I say, okay, now when you're ready, I want you to go ahead and jump off the diving board right into that swimming pool full of your pain. And what is quite miraculous, and I've been through this myself, and I use this exercise myself, is oftentimes when you jump right into the pain and fully accept that you're going to dive into your own pain, the pain completely dissipates and goes away, and you come to the realization that the pain actually has as much healing power as it did power to make you um, sad, hurt, or uncomfortable. So that's my best shot in a little bit of time I've got. Hi. Having helped thousands of people heal their digestive challenges, I can assure you that one approach that is most consistently helpful are effective digestive enzymes combined with top-quality probiotic support. The one company that I rely on for my digestive and body care enzymes is Bioptimizers, and all their products are top-notch and part of my family's natural medicine chest. In fact, their P3OM probiotic is one of my secret weapons. It will knock out food poisoning viruses and pathogenic bacteria fast, making it one of my preferred companions when eating out or traveling. Living 4D with Paul Check listeners get a huge 26% discount on the upgraded digestion package consisting of four great Bioptimizers products that I use myself. Go to bioptimizers.com, that's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com forward slash number four, capital D, capital L, and check out their excellent products. On checkout, use the code CHECK10 to get your discount. That's capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 10. That's bioptimizers.com forward slash number four, capital D, capital L. And for an amazing podcast, listen to my episode number 55 with Wade Lightheart, co-founder of Bioptimizers, and you'll be amazed at all the amazing things you're going to learn. Look forward to your feedback. Um, okay, this is the question from David, and his question is regarding a relationship he was in that recently ended. He says, my girlfriend and I were together for close to one and a half years. Our relationship was very healthy in that we could communicate honestly with each other. We could laugh at ourselves and we fully supported each other's passions and interests. The only area in which we were not aligned was our spiritual beliefs. She is very religious and I am not. We were both aware of our spiritual differences at the start of our relationship, but I never chose to see it as something that couldn't be solved with endless love and support for each other. Was I naive to think that my ex-girlfriend and I could resolve our spiritual differences by focusing on the least common denominator of our beliefs, i.e. God and love? And should I approach my next relationship with the intention of finding someone who thinks exactly like me and believes all the things I do? And do you believe that couples can thrive despite differences in their spiritual beliefs? And how do you recommend they raise children? Okay, there's a lot of questions there. Um, this is a question that's a, a, an issue in a lot of relationships, and I've, confront, I've been confronted by this question countless times. Well, it depends on how mature you are as an individual. Um, 
what causes problems when people have differences in religious or spiritual beliefs is that if the ego has not got enough maturity to allow the other person to be uniquely themselves without feeling like they have to change them or fix them, um, well, if they are mature enough to do that, then it doesn't usually cause any problems. You can celebrate the uniqueness of the individual. In other words, a Christian and a Muslim could cohabitate as long as they weren't proselytizing each other or criticizing the other person's beliefs or in some way demeaning or diminishing them or limiting their ability to practice what uh, creates connection and wholeness for them. But as soon as people start wronging or shaming or judging or blaming or uh, belittling the other because of their beliefs, then you you basically, uh, it's not likely that any relationship is going to survive that unless both people are, are pathological and love torturing each other. <clears throat> there are some differences in beliefs that, that can run parallel together. In other words, you, you can have, uh, you can have, um, a connection to the person, but realize that they be their beliefs about what happens when you die or their beliefs about whether God has expectations of you or whatever can be different than yours. But if you're practicing that religion in a way that creates happiness and wholeness and allows you to be more present with your partner, and they are given the freedom to practice in ways that create wholeness and happiness in them so they can be more present with you or their, their partner, then you have something that is compatible together and they can be as different as oil and water in the nature of the religious or the belief system, but the maturity of letting the other person truly be themselves and not having expectations or control dramas involved. Most people aren't mature enough for that, especially in our culture. Most people are brainwashed. And so whenever you're brainwashed, you're going to, you know, potentially violently uh, defend your belief system while not looking into the offerings or the beauty of another belief system. Um, unfortunately, if you can share what's in each of your philosophies and um, give yourself permission to adopt the beautiful parts which can come just by osmosis. For example, if one does not pray for their food, but the other one does, the one that doesn't can actually learn the joy of and the sort of the um, morals behind praying for food and grow their spiritual development. And they may have uh, different viewpoints on sex or uh eating or vaccinations or whatever than you. And as long as you actually remember the, the old saying, never judge a man by the creed he professes, but by the life he leads. And, and, and that can be he or she. So if the way your partner lives is nourishing and, and the way your partner lives um, is adding value to your life and giving you an opportunity to experience other viewpoints and other ways of relating and other ways of worshiping, it's beautiful because now you're actually growing yourself. And if yours can be shared with them in that way, then they get to grow too. Because as consciousness 
grows in human beings, we go from, in Ken Wilber's model, from the traditional stage, which is fundamentalism, you know, my way or no way, and this is the only way type beliefs, to modern level of consciousness, which is the integration of other re religious ideas, then you go to postmodern, then to integral. So what I'm saying is we're all on this progressive um, curve of upward growth or expansion in our consciousness naturally. Some just take a very, very long time to go from one structure stage to another, many, many lifetimes. Um, and some can make, uh, you know, transition one or two or three stages within one lifetime because of their openness, willingness, and the influences that they have through relationships in their life. Um, I think it's a really great opportunity. Um, and I think that what I'll close with is one of the most important things is that most people that have the kind of challenges that you're talking about have not studied the mystics of their own religion. So they're only going off the book, which may be the Bible, the Torah, the Quran, uh, you know, the various Buddhist sutras, whatever. But if you study the mystics, the mystics take you past the sort of fundamentalist, rigid approaches. And if you're a Christian and you study Christian mystics, you'll get a very expanded view. And paradoxically, not only will you get an expanded view, but you'll get an expanded view of that religion by the most enlightened people in the religion. The mystics are the, the, the true, you know, spiritual warriors of any given religion. I don't mean warrior in a negative sense, but they're the high flyers, they're the Kobe Bryants of, of religion. And so what you find is if you, for example, if one of you is, is uh, practicing um, what's sometimes called Mohammedism or Islam, and the other one's practicing Christianity, if you study, uh, say, uh, Eckhart, um, a Christian mystic, or St. Hildegard of Bingen, um, and then the other one studies Rumi, and you share what you're reading, uh, you know, you'll find some very, very profound insights that ultimately explode the limitations that are commonly experienced in traditional fundamentalist approaches to religions. But the beauty is they're coming from people that emerged out of those very sort of basic ideologies and grew to the point where they extended beyond them oftentimes radically. Uh, Rumi says no man can get to God until he becomes a heretic, and a heretic is someone that goes against the religion. What he means is you can't get enlightened by reading books and parroting. You have got to have an intimate, direct relationship with what God really is. And if you don't, you will not reach enlightenment. All you'll do is be like a child um, studying for a test through memorization and then reciting what you think you have to do or somebody that memorizes dance steps but doesn't create their own dance or someone that memorizes somebody else's book. And then when they write their own, it's really just a copy of somebody else's book. So true spiritual growth requires that you study the foundation principles enough to have a thinking and relating structure, but deep spiritual growth happens when you... Um, Put those practices to work and honestly evaluate where they're working for you and where they're limiting you. 
and then look to see what the mystics have to say as they approach the same concepts. And I found that when I give people sources outside of their religion, so if I give a Christian Rumi, they just won't even read it. They're, they're usually they're very irritated by it, or they're or they're just afraid of it. If you give uh, a Muslim um, a bunch of stuff on Christianity, they're not so shocked by it because uh, Muhammad refers to Jesus in the Quran, and Jesus is actually seen as as one of the legitimate teachers by uh, people practicing Islam. But the real point I'm making is that when you study the mystics, you get to see from inside your own belief system how expanded that belief system can become. And when you compare notes, you'll see that the magic is the mystics are almost always saying the same things using slightly different words. Uh, a great book, I don't know the author's name by heart, but uh, it's called The Parallel Sayings of Jesus, Buddha, Lao Tzu, and Krishna. Uh, I may have the order wrong. Jesus, Buddha, Lao Tzu, and Krishna. Um, I think the author's name is Hooper, if I remember right. Uh, I'm not positive, but it's, 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 I think there's only one book by that title out there. But when you look on many different subject areas, what Jesus, Buddha, Lao Tzu, and Krishna say, based on what's written in those religions, Hinduism, Taoism, Buddhism, and uh, Christianity, it's... I mean, anybody with even a couple of brain cells holding hands can see, oh my God, they're actually just saying the same thing using slightly different words. So when you get to the top of the ladder in any of the religions, which is the mystics, you actually realize they're all saying the same things. And so what I'm saying is the more you grow in your spiritual development, the more you realize that there are fundamental principles such as do unto others as you would have them do unto you that are the very basis of all religion. And most people are so busy worrying about the minutia of what should I wear, what should I eat, what day should I worship, that they actually get sidetracked from the real practice, which is to have empathy and compassion for your fellow man, for nature and for life, and to, to live and to love and to, um, to accept and, and to allow and to make space for the other and for them to make space for you too. And then from that place, you realize that you probably weren't nearly as far off from each other as you often thought you were, but you needed somebody with the spiritual development um, that could open you up, i.e. the mystic. Also, all this differences is based on interpretation of scripture. And the famous enlightened philosopher sage Shankara said, um, no man can understand scripture until he's enlightened. And when he's enlightened, he does not need scripture. And that's very, very true. Most, most true scriptures were written by enlightened people. Um, so the point that I'm driving at here is 99.9999999 to the nth decimal point percent of people in any religion were not taught by enlightened people. They're just taught by parrots regurgitating what somebody else told them to do and believing it. So um, if you realize that most of what causes battle between people is interpretation of scriptures, then you can sit down with someone 
that is very enlightened, like a Father Thomas Keating in Christianity. He's dead now, but he would be would have been a good example. He died recently. Or Matthew Fox, for example, if you read the works of Matthew Fox, a, a, a excommunicated Catholic priest, got excommunicated for teaching Buddhism and Taoism, other things like that to Christians, which I think is fantastic. Um, if you talk to someone that's really enlightened and share what your challenges are, you'll often find that these are not legitimate challenges. They're misunderstandings of Scripture, and they're the results of being programmed at an early age by people that did not have the depth of wisdom or understanding to really even understand what the words they're using to guide their beliefs and behaviors are, which is very, very sad, but very, very common. So those are a few tips for you. Thank you for listening to this Q&A edition of Living 4D with Paul Check. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4DPodcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's new streaming media channel at chikiva.com. Music